<clears throat> Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. <clears throat> in John chapter 15, our text will be verses 18 to 27. We are continuing on in Jesus' last discourse to his disciples. This is the night in which he is being betrayed. This is the night in which he is going to be arrested. And the last things that Jesus desires to express to his disciples is what we've been going over in chapters 14, 15, and then we'll go over in verse or chapter 16 as well. Much of what we read of this morning is really giving us the insight as to how the world is going to respond to those that are in Christ. It's very straightforward. Jesus has comforted his disciples. He's, he's demonstrated to them what is necessary to have a joyful life. That's what we've been going over thus far. He's been speaking of bearing fruit, proving to be his disciples. He's expressed to them that he is, he is granting them his joy, that, that their joy may be made full. And there was a number of different things that, that bring joy to our lives, things that we've been going over. And one of those, as we went over last Lord's Day, is that of loving one another. Showing that love, that agape love towards one another as Jesus himself has shown to us. Bearing good fruit. Praying. Praying for the mission of the church. All of that. And he ends that section again of commanding that very thing to love one another. All of these things together is what brings a joyful life in Christ. And that's what he's been expressing to his disciples. But now he's going to, in one sense, show the other side of the coin. What we would consider to be the other side of the coin. That the triune God has called us out of darkness into the kingdom of righteousness. And this is what is true of all those that are in Christ. That you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And for this reason, Jesus says, the world system that you've been delivered from will be hostile towards you. Because you no longer belong to it. Really, we have a great warning that is in this passage. How Jesus really puts two choices before us. Believe on him and receive the divine blessings of God. And be persecuted by the world. Or live in harmony with the world system. And endure the judgment of God. On the last day. We can endure the hatred and hostility for the life to come. Or we can take our ease, live at peace with the world system, and face the consequences thereafter. There's really only two choices. Some are not willing to endure the criticisms and the slanders that come with being a child of God. And recognize this, that it's not just criticisms and slander. This is what we endure here in America. We don't endure the very things that our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through in other countries, that they are literally dying just for bearing the name Christian. And some people aren't willing to do that, to endure such hostilities, which is why Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower, when he says, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Some who profess to know Christ 
will inevitably depart when the very things that Jesus is going to talk about to us today begin to occur. But for those who endure the hardships and who trust in the Lord and who look to the Lord, the scriptures tell us that all of these things that we endure in this life are not to be compared with the glory that awaits. The Apostle Paul says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. And we, we endure much affliction in this life. You don't have to tell anybody that. It's, it's just a known fact. We endure various kinds of affliction and discomforts and sufferings and pains. That's why the Apostle also says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And he really goes over a number of different categories of suffering there, of mental suffering, of emotional suffering, of physical suffering. These types of things that we will inevitably endure. But throughout all of that, the privilege that we have of knowing Christ and of serving Christ and of following Christ irrespective of those things is is what still brings us joy in this life. Even the hostilities that Jesus is going to tell his disciples are not enough to remove the joy that we have in Christ. Now, to say something from the, the outset here, this passage is not just to make aware of what is happening or what, what the, how the world views believers. It's not just to, to make us aware of these things just so you can know what to expect. This text really helps us to see the great gap that exists between those that are in Christ and those that are outside of Christ. And seeing this gap not only prepares us for the hatred and the hostility, but also should promote within us a great desire on the part of the people of God to testify even more of the greatness of our God to those that are in darkness. So as we work our way through this passage, I pray indeed that we would have a great understanding of why the world system hates us and all of that, but to also have our hearts stirred within us to understand that there are people that are still in darkness that need the light of Christ. And the gospel is the only thing that will bring them to faith. We are to be witnesses as he will tell his own disciples towards the end of chapter 15. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 15, beginning of verse 18. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world... Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would, have, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. 
When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come into your presence this day to give you honor and praise and glory for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus, your only beloved Son. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we pray indeed that the Spirit of God would move mightily within our hearts, giving us understanding, giving us an even greater boldness and encouraging us, strengthening us for the days ahead. We pray that he would teach us this morning and how we need him every moment to teach us and to guide us in your word. Father, be glorified in your people this day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. So again, Jesus has been going through a number of different things here. Expressing these last words, if you will, to his disciples before he is going to be arrested. Go through a mockery of a trial. Ultimately to be beaten, crucified. And it is... As we've talked about before, this is an amazing thing to really consider because it's Jesus who is getting ready to depart, and yet it's not his disciples that is trying to comfort him in his last hours. It's Jesus that has turned his attention to his disciples to say, these things I want you to know and that you need to know before I depart. Usually it's the other way around. Whenever we have loved ones that are getting ready to pass, we want to comfort them, but not so with the Lord Jesus. His concern is his disciples. His concern is to to strengthen them for the great trial that is ahead of them and the hours that is yet to come. What great trial that they indeed will endure. Now all the things that he's been talking about thus far have been very nice, pleasant things for the most part. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Have joy to the fullest. Your joy may be full. You know, abide in Him, all of this kind of language. And then here, He begins to express now what other things that they need to be watchful for and be prepared for. You know, it is not a matter of if these things will happen. It is a matter of when these things will happen. And inevitably, if you are ever talking to an unbeliever, you can sometimes have a good conversation with an unbeliever. It is possible. Uh, I've had those, and I'm sure some of you have as well. But when you begin to make those distinctions of the exclusivity of the Christian faith, of any of that kind of language, people become upset and they become offended. And it's going to happen that they're going to be offended because truth by definition discriminates against falsehood. The gospel is going to be offensive And when those things occur, you should expect that there's going to be some hostility against you. That's why Peter says in in 1 Peter, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which will come upon you for the testing of your faith, as if some strange thing happened to you. We don't don't act like these things are, are, what, what what is this happening? Why is this happening? We know it's going to happen. It's inevitable it's going to happen. All you have to do is just think of the the last couple of weeks here with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. 
Look at the hostility that is out there. Does that mean that every that, that everyone who was against abortion was Christian? No. But all their hostilities is aimed towards them, towards us. The vile things that they say, the vile things that they do. Why? Because when you stand for what is right in God's sight, you're going to receive hostility from those who do not believe in him. Those who reject his law. It's going to happen. And you have to understand that. There's not us and them and then a neutral people. There are believers and then those who are not. That's it. You only got two categories of people in the world. That's why when you get to, when you young people, when you get to college and, and you begin to take classes, sometimes you'll have professors that will say, well, let's just be neutral here when it comes to this particular point of view. And they're not neutral. You know, Greg Bonson, one theologian and apologist, he would tell university students, they aren't neutral and you shouldn't be. You don't set your Christianity up on the shelf there in order to avoid any disagreements. You stand firm in what is right. You stand firm in what you know to be true. That's the, that's the difference. You know this to be true. It isn't wishful thinking. It isn't that, well, I really hope that these things are true. It's that they are true. Because here's, here's the thing, especially when you get into the ideas of, of morality today, and when you start speaking anything against the morality of the secular world, you end up receiving hostility. You end up being called names, a bigot, and all this other stuff. And yet the very thing that they don't understand is that only because God exists do you have an objective standard of truth an objective standard of what is right and wrong. Apart from that, you don't have anything. They have their feet planted firm in midair when it comes to morality, when it comes to truth. Only in Christ do you have that solid foundation. And so you stand firm on it. You don't give it up. You stand firm. And when you do that, you will receive some backlash. That will inevitably come in one way or the other. Now, why do they do it? Well, Jesus says here, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Why does the world... And this is... When we're talking about the world, we're not talking about the globe. We're not talking about the earth. We're not talking about the entirety of the human realm. We're talking about the world system that is in rebellion against God. That's the way the word world is being used here. The world hated him. That's what he's saying. And because it hates him, it's going to hate you. He says, and we're going to skip around just a little bit. You know that it hated me before it hated you. He goes on to say in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Why does the world system that is in rebellion against God hate Christ? Because Christ exposes the darkness. He exposes the falsehood. He exposes the error. And for that reason, they hate Him. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They love to do what they do. 
They love their pleasures. They love their ideas. They love, they love their philosophies. They love it all. And so to have the most pure, the most holy, expose that darkness that only brings up within them a great hatred. And that, that, that hatred is, is to loathe him. He says there... <clears throat> That he who hates me hates my father also. And that's an important thing to understand because because they hate Christ, this also implies that they hate the father. You have many world religions that exist in the world today. And all of them claim that they know God and that they love God and yet reject the son of God. That is evidence right there that they do not know God. Because if they did know God and they loved God, they would love the son. But the God in whom they love and the God in whom they believe is not the holy God. He is not the one who is the transcendent one, yet the one who is imminent. The one who has disclosed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, exposing the darkness. The most holy God they do not know. And we look at that and we say, well, that's, that's, that's mean to say things like that. that they, they are sincere in their beliefs. Sincerity does not mean that you have the truth. You can be sincere over a lot of things. But that doesn't mean that what you're sincere about is actually right. You can look at the world religions today and you can put them in a number of different categories. You can look at the Eastern Indian philosophies. You can look at the, the New Age philosophy, which is really a, re, a revision of the Eastern Indian philosophies. And, and you look at those particular world religions, and you look at the monotheistic religions of Islam and Judaism. And when you begin to look into them and to compare and to, to try to understand what they're saying about the Lord and whether or not what they say about Him comports with reality, you will find that they fall apart. Especially when you get into some of these world religions where they don't even believe in a a personal God, but an impersonal force. How does an impersonal force create personal beings? And if an impersonal force can create personal beings, then what value do you have? What basis of morality do you have? How do you know right from wrong? How do you know where you've been? How do you know where you're going? What's your value? They can't answer that. Just because someone is sincere does not mean that they know God. And when you bring up the Son of God, and you begin to speak of Christ the Son of God, inevitably what happens? Well, we believe that maybe He's a good teacher, or maybe He's a good prophet. We do not believe that He's the Son of God. We do not believe that He is God. And they are outright rejecting Him. That is demonstrating they don't know God because they don't know the Son. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day... They claim to know God. They claim to have served the one true God, Yahweh. And yet, they were just hypocrites. And that's where Jesus is saying, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. In the time of Christ, in the time that he's walking on the earth, he's speaking to the religious leaders. He's exposing their hypocrisy. And what happened when he did that? They began to slander him. They began to try to discredit him. Here is God in the flesh. 
one who is truly God and truly man, who is the fullest revelation of God that the world has ever known, who only speaks truth, who only does what is right, and the very thing that they thought of him was, he's an imposter, we hate him, we need to get rid of him. Why? Because he is exposing the darkness of their hearts. Imagine that, living in the time of Christ and the one who only speaks truth, who doesn't lie. In him there is no darkness. And what does the world think of him? They hate him. You know, it's funny when you have people today that say, well, if God would just manifest himself, and then I I would know and I would believe. And it's, no, you wouldn't. Because they didn't. And when God manifested himself in his son, the very thing that they did was kill him. By the decree of God, of course. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, all that took place. They were still held responsible for their hatred towards him and the deeds that they did against him. He says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did... They would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. This they have done to fulfill the word that was spoken in their law. They hated me without cause. What he's talking about there is anybody can come and say that I am of God or God spoke to me and whatever. And you have so many people that do it today. God spoke to me and this is what he said. Whenever people do that, you really just need to run away from them. Because God has said all that he needed to say right here in the scripture. And anything that is said otherwise is contrary to the scripture. Anybody can say God spoke and that God this or God manifested himself, whatever. Jesus comes and Jesus claims not to have just been spoken to by the Lord, but he claims to be the Lord. And the works which he did vindicated him to be who he claimed to be. When you think of the office of a prophet and you think how it began with Moses and Moses and Aaron are going to go before Pharaoh and they're going to first have to go before the people of God and convince them that God has actually sent him. What is it that the Lord did in order to, to help the people to understand that Moses was really speaking on behalf of the Lord? He accompanied him with signs and wonders to verify the claims that he was speaking. Go down your staff, it turns into a serpent. Put your hand into your cloak, pull it back out, it's going to be leprous. These things were the standard of prophets from there on out. That the Lord would vindicate, would verify the the words of the prophet by accompanying him with signs and wonders. To say, he is actually speaking on behalf of the Lord. And this is how you know. This is the very things that Jesus did except to a much greater extent because no one can do the things that the Son of God did. No one ever brought a man back from the dead after being dead four days. But Jesus did. And the things that he did verified his truth claims about himself. And because of that, he's saying, because I didn't just come and say that I am he... But I came saying I am he and I had the works to accompany me. These things proved him to be 
the Son of God. And what did that do? It only made them hate Him even more because He was truth incarnate. And that's why He quotes that passage, they hated Me without cause. There was never a cause that Jesus did anything to them in order for them to hate Him other than standing and demonstrating the truth in being the truth and exposing the darkness. Doing so brings that kind of hostility. They hate Him. Now you have many today that will say that they love Jesus, but the very things that they stand for when it comes to what Jesus had taught or what the Scripture stand for is contrary to the Scripture. They love the Jesus that they've conjured up in their own minds. They love the Jesus of their tradition. They don't love the Jesus of Scripture. That may sound mean or offensive, but here's what you always have to come back to is the Jesus of culture and the Jesus of liberal churches and the Jesus of this or that cannot save. If you care anything about the lost and you care anything about those that are in darkness, you give them the real Jesus. You don't give them the Jesus that will be nice to them or the one that they would happily receive. You give them the Jesus that can save their soul and deliver them from the wrath to come. That's the Jesus that you give them. That's the Jesus that saves. Because they hate Him, they're going to hate you. You stand for Him. You represent Him. He says here, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. You are no longer of the world. That's what he's saying. You're no longer of the world system. You don't conform to the pattern of the world system any longer. You've been distinguished from it. One writer says this, The world always suspects or distrusts nonconformity. And when you become a child of God and you're delivered from the world system, you don't conform to their standards anymore. You don't conform to their philosophies. You don't conform to their views. You don't conform to their morality. You've been set apart and you're now distinct and you stand for the scripture. You stand for the Lord. You stand for his word. You stand for truth. And that's why you are to be different. Different from the world system. You know, it's funny that we always look at the, the world system itself in rebellion against God, and we ask this question, how close can I get? What things am I permitted to do? Rather than saying, the world is in rebellion against the Lord, the world is going to receive the judgment of God, let me stand back as far as I can. We don't look at things like that. we got that line, and we want to get as close as we can to that line. Instead of understanding... And this is, this is what you have to understand. This is what I have to understand. Is that even the things of the world, the things that we maybe enjoy ourselves, the people. Anyone that is not the Lord's, that is not a child of God, will endure the righteous indignation of a holy God. You have to understand that. 
And so the very things that they do, they're going to be judged for. They are going to stand before the one whom they reject, and he will be their judge. This isn't Jesus meek and mild either. The very Jesus that people say all the time, well, only God can judge me, indeed he will. And the ones that, and the one in particular that you will stand before will be the Lord Jesus. The people that you know, the people that you love. The people who are not in Christ are going to stand before him in judgment. That is the reality of the situation. That's the reality of life. So it's not a matter of how close can I get or how many things can I do that they do. It should be let me be distinct. Let me show a better way in Christ. Let me give the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. We have to change our thinking. We want to get along with everybody, and by all means, the Scripture tells us to live at peace with all men if possible. And we try. We don't want to be, you know, obnoxious and, and all of that, which many, many believers are. You want to be humble. You want to be kind. That doesn't mean that you're to be someone's doormat. But it is saying that in the way that you approach the unbeliever, you approach them in a manner of humility and kindness, extending to them the gospel that is able to save their souls. And again, this this passage of Scripture isn't just to, to tell us what is coming or what we perhaps endured in a various way. It is to demonstrate as well the gap that exists. That the unbelieving hate him. And that the unbelieving will inevitably endure the judgment of him. And what that is intended to do is to promote within you and I a greater desire. To have a heart for the lost. We we see people out here doing all all sorts of of nonsense things and we get angry. And we, we see people marching in the streets, you know, for abortion and, and the LGBT stuff and all of that, and we get angry. But the very thing that you need to understand and to know is that they do those things because they are in darkness. And they do what is natural to them, which is to sin and be in rebellion against the Lord. And what our intention is, is not to just throw up our hands, Lord, press the button, bring it down. But our intention should be, let, let me be even more, uh, just let, let me give everything that I can for the people that are in my life to pray for them, to ask the Lord to change their hearts and to give them a new heart and let me be a light to them. Let me give them the gospel and to continue giving the gospel. Well, we, we have this excuse, well, I gave it to them one time, I did my job. No, you didn't. Because when it comes to praying, when it comes to praying for anything, when it comes to praying for the lost, you, you knock and, and you seek. You, you're, you're knocking down the doors of heaven. You're asking God to move in their life and you continually do it. 
because you care for people that are perishing. You need to care for people that are perishing. You know, there is one thing, as one theologian said, there's one thing that you can do here that you can't do in heaven, and that's to preach the gospel to the lost. This is your only opportunity to do that. In the time in which you leave and depart, that opportunity is gone. And yes, this is going to happen. You're not... You're not of the world anymore. You've been chosen out of the world. You've been set apart. You're distinct now. Your loyalties are not to their ideas, and your loyalties are not to their philosophies anymore. Your loyalty is to God and to the truth of God. And as a result of that, hostility will come. One writer says this, Hatred does not exist because of what Christians are in themselves. They are nothing. It does not exist because of what they have done. They are harmless. Hatred exists because of the word that Jesus, that Jesus spoke and because Christians are identified with him by virtue of his call. That's why hatred exists against you, against the people of God. Against Christians all over the world. Again, who are dying simply because they bear the name Christian. And they're dying because they're standing for the truth of God. They're not muddying the waters. They're not trying to appeal to an unbelieving uh, culture in order to, to try to somehow make Christ acceptable to them. You know, Dr. Joel Beakey, who is known to a number of us, great theologian. He was over in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. I think it was back in the 90s. Uh, when we were in class, he was telling us about this. That In the town that he was in, there was very few Christians that were there, maybe just a handful. And so when he is speaking to them, they, they're telling him about how things are going over there. The place is, is obviously dominated by Islam. Now, usually what happens is that the Muslims will come in, bust in their church, arrest them, beat them, keep them for a couple days, let them go. So, so much time later, they will be arrested, they will be beaten, kept in prison, let go. This is a constant cycle. And so Dr. Beaky had said, well, how can I pray for you? What can we do to pray for you, to help you? And the man said, pray that the persecution does not stop. And he said, pray that it doesn't stop? He says, yeah, pray that it doesn't stop. Because we don't want here what you have in America. Over there, the lines are blurred too much. Here we know who are the true people of God. And that is a serious indictment on the American church. The lines are so blurred, you don't know who's a believer and who isn't. Not truly, because they're doing the very same things that the world system advocates. They're loving the same thing that the world loves. They do the same things. We are to be a distinct people. 
You've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, as the Scripture says. You've been delivered from the wrath of God. That's what you're being saved from. You're not being saved from just hell or from, from Satan. You're being saved from the wrath of God. You know, people will say all the time that hell is a place in which God, uh, the, God's existence isn't there or whatever they say. And that's not true. Hell is hell because God is there. And it is His wrath that is being poured out against you in hell. It isn't just light a flame, throw somebody in it, and leave and go on. We use that a lot too, you know, people burning in hell and all of that. You have to understand something as well when it comes to the nature of hell. When you think about heaven, and you think about the glories of heaven and the beauty of heaven, the scripture uses so many symbols in order to try to describe to of the finite mind of, of how beautiful and how grand it is. So you have imagery of gates of pearl and streets of of gold, transparent, and all of this sort of language to just try to describe the beauty of heaven. But the scripture says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. In the same way, it's the same with hell. You have the word that speaks of the eternal state as far as the judgment of God, which is Gehenna, which was a trash heap right outside of Jerusalem. It was a place in which they would burn their trash. Fire was constantly going. And so Jesus is using this to describe the agony of hell. What's one of the worst things that you could ever think of? Is continually burning in a flame and never being consumed. And never ending. And so he's using that symbolically to describe the agony of hell. But the reality of hell is far greater than the symbol being used. That's the reality of it. And in light of those things, in light of that truth, in light of, in light of what is to come, it shouldn't be that we are just at ease with people. It shouldn't be that we just wave them on into hell or give up so easy. There is no one so far gone that cannot be reached. You need to know that. There are none so far gone that they cannot be reached. You know, we, we talk about, you know, testimonies, and depending on what church you grew up in, you know, you always have people giving their testimony, and sometimes it always seemed like it was a bit of a competition. You know, who can be, who was the greatest sinner? Well, I used to hit the bars, and I used to do this, and this, and this, and this. Then you have other people that uh, had uh, one couple that came here. The guy in particular always thought, well, I don't really have a testimony because I, I never did any of that. And the truth is, is that God had to reach no further down to get the one who was hitting the bars and all of this sort of thing than he did you. Because all of us, we're dead in our trespasses and sin, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. All of us walked according to the course of this world. All of us were lying at the bottom of our own cesspool, dead. Until the goodness of God. 
And this is where Paul Washer talks about, and I love it so much I can't help it. You're at the bottom of your own cesspool, full of your own refuse, and the pure Son of God wades into your cesspool. And he dives in headfirst. He picks you up. And he cleans your mouth. And he breathes into you the breath of life. And then he cleanses you. He gives you his robe. And he takes you as his own. For no other reason than he simply chose to. The grace of God has been extended to you in such a way, how then can you withhold it from somebody else? And here's the great encouragement that we have. He says in verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Here's the great encouragement of it all. Is that none of this is done in your own power. None of it. If people come to faith, it's not because of you. People come to faith because the Spirit of God has worked in their heart and used you as the means in order to bring it to pass. He has spoken of the coming of the Spirit of God already. And we talked about that. The the idea here is not that the Spirit is coming to indwell. He's already been doing that. The Spirit has already been regenerating hearts for hundreds and hundreds of years. The significance of Pentecost wasn't that He comes to indwell, but He comes to empower the believers to the fullest measure where only judges and prophets and kings were empowered by Him beforehand. Now it's extended to all believers. That's why He says in the passage in Acts, which is quoting from Joel, He doesn't say, I'm going to put My Spirit within you. He says, I will pour out My Spirit upon you. That all believers are empowered with the Holy Spirit of God for the work of ministry. That means that each one of you, regardless of your age, that the Lord has empowered you for the work of ministry, has empowered you to, to share the gospel, to be His ambassador, to snatch people out of the fire, as Jude says. He's enabled you to do that because of the Spirit of God that He has granted to you. This one who comes is the helper. He is the one who is the paraclete. The one who comes alongside. He is the one who witnesses about Christ. Who testifies about him to the world that has rejected him. He is the one who convicts the world of sin. And of righteousness and of judgment. As he will say in chapter 16. The spirit of truth. Who exposes the darkness. Is the one who resides within you. And who has empowered you. That you too would be his witnesses. Just as these men were. Think of this. You have these 11. You can throw in the Apostle Paul. These men preaching the gospel turned the known world upside down because they were empowered by the Spirit of God. In a world that was in darkness to paganism, The Lord had empowered them to preach the gospel. The Spirit of God would convert the hearts of the people. And the church began growing. On one day, 3,000 people were converted. And the church is growing. And as it's growing and the people are being converted, then they're going out. And they're sharing the gospel as well. And as more people are being converted, then they're going out even more. 
And again, no one is so far gone that they cannot be converted. These are pagans. And the Spirit of God is moving within the heart and regenerating the heart, causing them to be born again. Changing their minds, changing their wills, changing their emotions, changing their hearts. So that they're no longer patterned after the world system, but now they're patterned after the Holy Spirit of God. If we had lived back in that time, we would look at that and say, it's hopeless. But nothing is impossible with God. God can convert any heart that He chooses to convert. When it comes to salvation, it's all in the Lord's hands. That's why we pray to Him to convert our loved ones and our friends. Because he's the only one that can. And the means that he uses in order to do it is you and I. We get to be part of the means that God has ordained in order to bring the lost to faith. It's all in his power. We can't take credit for it because we're such eloquent speakers or whatever. The Lord always gets the credit because only he can convert the heart. And that's the beauty of it. You've received the grace of God. You have extended that his, his love has been extended to you. You're the objects of His love. And you have the privilege of knowing Him. And that's the essence of what salvation is. It's not just being able to live forever in heaven. It's that we may know God. And you have that privilege. And you have that great blessing that has been given to you. A blessing that was not obligated to you. And so the very things that we do now, as a result of what you have received, is you go out to your friends and to your loved ones, and you pray for them, you love them, you give them the gospel, and you trust in the Lord with the results. You know what makes evangelism successful? Not that necessarily the people come to faith, because that's God's area. People do that. So many people were saved under this guy, and so many people were saved under this guy, and we make a big to-do over it. No, evangelism is successful because you're faithful in doing it. Because you're walking in obedience, and you're trying to reach out to those that are in darkness. That's what makes it successful. You have a heart for them. You have a heart for your Lord to obey and to walk in paths of righteousness for His namesake and to tell of the greatness of your God regardless of what comes thereafter. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to get to. Instead of just being so much at ease or indifferent to all the things that, that are going on or indifferent to our loved ones who don't believe. The greatest message that we can ever give is that Jesus died for sinners. That's the greatest message. And think of that. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. And He endures the very wrath of His Father, the righteous indignation of God on the cross. And He satisfies the justice of His Father in your place so that 
through faith in him. His righteousness is credited to you as if you had done it. Your unrighteousness is credited to him and he paid the penalty for it. So that's what brings you into favor with God. And that's the great message that we are privileged to give others. You can know the love of God. You can know the love of Christ by believing and repenting. Let us get there. Let us get to that place. We get angry at times. It's understandable we get angry. But just because we get angry, whether it's at politicians or or whoever, we don't withhold the gospel from them. Imagine what would happen if the Lord regenerated their hearts in the positions that they're in. Imagine then what could happen. Let us indeed have a heart for the lost, dear friends. We were once lost, and the Lord sent someone our way when we were in rebellion. We shouldn't think so highly of our own selves that we withhold it from someone else. Preach the gospel to every creature. Leave the results with him. That's where we need to be. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we are to rely totally on you. We are absolutely dependent upon you for all things. We are dependent upon you to help us to endure the hostilities, to endure the slanders or criticisms, whatever may come, because we have confidence in you. We thank you that you indeed set us apart and brought us out of darkness for no other reason than just a pure act of grace on your part. Thank you for having mercy on us and making us the object of your love in the Lord Jesus. Father, help us each day not to be indifferent but to understand that people are perishing. And the very message of hope we have in Christ. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be bold, courageous, to stand even in the face of hostility and to tell of the greatness of Christ. Not to be belligerent, not to be offensive in that way, but to be kind be straightforward, but to stand firm in the truth of God. Father, thank you that the Spirit of God is the one who works within us, who works through us, that all the results are left to Him, that our responsibility is not to save. That's your part. And thank you for that. What a great burden that would be to know that it was on our shoulders. We praise you indeed that it isn't. You can convert hearts. You can save. Father, thank you again for all that you've done in our lives. Help us to be those that glorify your name. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.